Well, amen, amen. Thank you so much, Cody, worship team, for leading us this morning. And y'all, again, it is so great to see all of you here this morning. If you were visiting with us, we are glad you decided to come and be a part of our service today. If you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, and I hope you do, please open with me to the book of Judges. The book of Judges, and we will be in chapter 7 today, Judges 7. As we are continuing our series through the book of Judges, that's titled Deja Vu. As we see over and over again, God's people seem to keep doing the same things, and yet over and over again, God keeps showing his goodness to them again and again and again. So we'll be in all of Judges chapter 7 this morning. You know, at this point in my life, I have preached hundreds of sermons just over the last decade or so, a little more than that. I've preached hundreds of sermons and there's really not that many sermons, if I just think about it, if someone's like, what are the top five sermons you ever preached? I couldn't give you those things. I honestly can't hardly remember. So whenever someone tells me, Merrick, I don't really remember what you said in a sermon, I really don't take offense to it. I don't remember it either, I promise you. But I've preached hundreds of sermons, and there's a few of them that I can recollect. There's one specifically that I will never forget. Of all the sermons I've ever done, there's one I will never forget as long as I live. And it's not because of how powerful the sermon was. It's not because of the response. It's also not because of how bad or embarrassing it was. But it was for a completely different reason. There's something that God showed me in the middle of the sermon while I was in the midst of preaching that I will never forget. So what happened is I was at a church and I got asked to preach on a Sunday morning. And I was really excited to finally have the opportunity to preach on a Sunday morning. I felt like ultimately the Lord had called me to be a pastor. And so this is one of my first opportunities to get to do that. And I can remember as I prepared, I prepared with as best as I could because I wanted to wow the people that were there. I prepared the illustrations a certain way and got all the ones that I thought would just be just, you know, home run type illustrations. I got a, a, a text that I knew was an incredible text. It's pretty hard to mess up if you're in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, I got this great text. But the problem is, is I stood up that Sunday morning ready to wow everyone. And once I started preaching, it became immediately clear that the Lord was trying to tell me something. And as I preached, I started feeling something I've never felt before in my life, especially up here. I felt the Lord tell me, Merrick, you're alone. You're alone. You want to be here and you want to rile the crowd? Now is your chance. Use your fancy illustrations. Use my own words and do your best to make much of yourself. And I'm telling you, I have never felt an emptiness or a hollowness up here like that ever in my life. And I've never experienced it again. My wife surely remembers, I remember I came and I sat down beside her and I looked over and I said, I will never do that again. And friends, one of the things I've learned about preaching is dependence upon the Lord means everything. It's not about a fancy outline, it's not about the best illustration, it's not about can you wow someone. The question is, is, is the Lord speaking through his word through a vessel? Friends, whenever it comes to your and my life, it does not matter how great or colorful or perfect we try and perceive ourselves to be or how good we seek to do in various areas. Your and my greatest need is for God to be with us. And we've talked about this in Judges. We've talked about it. And we've talked about it. But like I told you, every single chapter of Judges is like taking the same rock and picking it up and looking at a different facet of it, seeing a little bit more about it. And what we're going to notice this morning is by nature, we all struggle with self-reliance and with pride. But we must learn that God will not use those who think they can do the work of the Lord or anything in their own power. Ultimately, God does not need you. He does not need me. He does not need your talents or your gifts or your abilities. What God needs is people who are utterly dependent upon him. The title of the sermon this morning is Learning Dependence. Learning Dependence. Learning how to be dependent upon the Lord. And in Judges chapter 7, we get a crash course on this as good as any other in all of the Bible. As we return to continue the story of Gideon. Now let me give you a little bit of an update. If you were here last week, just a reminder. If you weren't, let me hopefully catch you up to speed. In chapter 6, what we see is God's people are sinning against him for seven years. They're running away from him, worshiping other idols, and finally they cry out to the Lord. The Lord sends a prophet to them. The prophet comes and says, it's because of everything that you're doing that you're here. It's not because I've left you. It's because you have left me. And they're experiencing all sorts of agony. It says in chapter 6 that they were brought low because of the Amalekites, the Midianites, the people from the east. What these people were doing is they were coming in during harvest season. They were taking all of the food, all of the cattle, and they were leaving. It says that they would come in like locusts, just strip the land, and then they would leave. 
And God's people were in agony, though it was their own fault. But God, even in the midst of this, in deserving judgment, God comes to a certain person to raise up a deliverer. He goes to a man named Gideon. And he says, I'm going to save Israel through you, through you. This is so odd because Gideon seems, in, by all indications, to be somewhat of a weasel. He's hiding in a wine press. He's hiding from everyone. Yet the Lord calls him a mighty man of courage. And he says, through you, I'm going to save Israel. What we see is Gideon puts God through various tests, a sacrifice test. Let me do these things. Let me see if this is really you. And then he tests, God tests Gideon at home. Will you stand up in your home before you go out and you stand up for me? And then he calls together this whole army. He gets an army together. He's ready to go into battle, but Gideon still is afraid. And so he does the fleece test. God, if you're really with me, let there be, be dew on the fleece, but not on the ground. And God did it. Then he said, well, well, let's try this again. Let there be dew on the ground and not on the fleece. And God did it. And chapter six ends with Gideon has an army and he's ready now to go and to fight the battle of the Lord. This is where we begin in chapter one. And as we walk through this chapter, we're gonna note four lessons that the Lord is teaching Gideon and ones that he needs to teach us as well. Chapter seven, verse one. It says, then Jerebaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh, in the valley. Now to get the full picture of this, we learn a little bit later that where they are situated, they can see down into the valley. In chapter eight or, or in verse eight, what you see is that the, the Amalekites, the Midianites, this whole army is not just in the valley, they cover the whole valley. The valley is full of their whole army in abundance. They have camels that you cannot even count. It's a massive army. And so the picture at the beginning of chapter seven is Gideon has his little army He's at the top of this hill. He's looking down into this valley. And surely, I can almost promise you, he's thinking, God, do we have enough people? <laughs> you can't even count them. They're covering the whole valley. Do we have enough? And notice what God says. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So God calls out to him and says, you know what, Gideon, I agree. There's just too many of them down there for you to fight. Actually, no, he says the exact opposite. Not that there's too many of them down there. There's too many of you. Later on, we'll find out that his army is 32,000 people deep. And then even later on, we'll find out that the Midianites had an army of 135,000 people. 32,000 versus 135,000. Who's going to win most likely? And what God tells him is you have too many. Has this ever happened in the history of the world? Our army is too big to win, <laughs> right? But what we see is the real issue is not the size of the army, but the size of the ego of the army. The army is too big because if God gives them victory, as he said they would, that he would, they would take the credit for themselves. So what does the Lord tell Gideon to do? Look at verse three. It says, now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. For what we know about Gideon, I'm shocked Gideon didn't say and hear from the Lord, if you're fearful and trembling, leave. And Gideon didn't say, all right, I'm the captain of this group. If you want to follow me, let's leave. What you see, though, is he says this to his group and 22,000 leave. Two-thirds of his army leave like that. How deflating do you think this feels whenever you already are outnumbered? And then you find out the majority of your army is scared to death. And they go home, so they're left with 10,000 people. And surely Gideon is thinking now, Lord, how are you going to do this? Now we don't have enough. We really don't have enough now. Our army is it's gone. To which God says in verse 4, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Friends, the problem with stories like this is many of you know them and you don't see, you don't see because you know the story. You don't stop to really think about what's going on here. So I would challenge you this morning. Look at what's going on. All of us in here maybe love a good underdog story of the person who's not supposed to win winning the battle. This is not an underdog story. This is a suicide mission. 10,000 people on 135,000 people, there's no way that they are able to win. And yet what the Lord says is you still have too many. 10,000 under-resourced men who don't even have a sword are too many to fight against this sea of an army with all these camels, with all of the advantages and all of the weapons. 
God says, there's still too many. You'll still take credit. So what does God do? Notice how he weeds them out even more. Verses four through seven. It says, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. And give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. 9,700 people now leave. Can you imagine them going back to their tents and getting home? They walk in, the wife says, what are you doing home? I thought you were going to battle. Gideon sent me home. Wow, what did you do? Something about I drank water funny? I really don't know. It's really interesting and, and almost weird in many ways. What's even more interesting is how much people come up with of saying, this is what's really going on here, and I think we missed the point. So what I'm saying is as many people would say, well, you have the people who got on all fours and put their head down to the water and drank, then you have the people who brought water up to their hand. Well, the people who brought water up to their hand must have been the people who were more alert. They were looking for the enemy, so God wanted to use them. Well, maybe so. Other people would say the people who put the water to their hand were the people who were ready for war. They didn't want water, they just wanted war. God, I think the point of the story has nothing to do with how God selected them because God wasn't seeking to choose the 300 warriors out of the group. God's sole purpose was to dwindle this army down to a particular number, not a particular kind of soldier. And it would make even more sense in light of the narrative that if the 300 who were left were the oddballs of the group, not the people who were the warriors of the group. Also, if you even think about it, how do you lap water with water in your hand? I've thought about this all week. It really doesn't make sense, right? How does this even work? This might have been just the guys who had no clue what was going on. They're just there. They're just drinking water. Don't even know what they're doing, right? The point is simply this. God was going to bring the army down in such a way that it would be impossible for anyone to get the glory except for him. God was going to dwindle the army down so much that only he could get the glory if they were to win. The big question we should ask all throughout this chapter is why did God weaken Gideon's army? Why did God weaken Gideon's army? It's the whole point of the chapter. Why did God weaken Gideon's army? Well, we see it's because God wants to get the glory. So what does he do? Why does he weaken Gideon's army? I'll give you four points. He wants to show Gideon, number one, he wants to show Gideon the danger of pride. Why did God whittle down his army? Weaken his army? He wanted to show Gideon, as well as us, the danger of pride of pride. God will not fulfill his purposes through those who seek, seek to steal his glory. You know, the thing that is difficult about this is by our very nature, all of us are born glory hungry. All of us are born. If you've had a child, you know, they come in thinking they're God's gift to the world, right? And while we may not act like that as we grow up, all of us have within us the desire to make our name known for glory hungry, for us to get the credit for what we do. Timothy Keller says it best. I have it for you on the screen. He says, human nature is such that if there is the tiniest opportunity to boast in our own work, we will. Can't you see that in this? And think about how crazy it is. Two thirds of this army was scared to death, but if God would have given them victory, they would have stood up and said, it's because of us. That's how human pride works. 10,000 people, this small little army, under-resourced, and yet God still says the 10,000 people would say it's because of us. Look at what we've done. God whittles this army down to 300 because it is outlandishly impossible. God intentionally weakens his own army because he wants them to see that he's the one who deserves all the credit and all the glory, and he's not going to share that with anyone because the glory belongs to him. I've been in school a long time, at this point too long. My wife, I'm sure, feels the same way as I do about that. But whenever I was in school, especially once I got into college and in seminary, something that gets just pounded into your brain every single semester, every single class, every single paper is the danger of plagiarism. Do not plagiarize anybody's work. I don't know what it is here at Murray State, but at Tech, I remember we had, we had two rules. You get caught plagiarizing, you get kicked out of the class immediately, 
a flunking grade. You have to retake the class. If you get caught twice, you get kicked out of the university. Like plagiarism is a big deal. But why is plagiarism such a big deal? Whenever you plagiarize something, you're doing two things. You're both lying and stealing. You're lying, saying that this work that you're turning in is your own work, which is a lie. It's not your work, it's somebody else's. But not only are you lying, you're also stealing. You're taking the credit that belongs to someone else, and you're seeking to get the credit for yourself. Friends, whenever you and I live our lives and seek to get the credit or the glory, it is spiritual plagiarism. It is stealing the glory that rightly belongs to God and saying, it's because of me I'm where I am. It's lying about about why you really are in the place you are. Friends, if God wanted you to be somewhere else, you would be somewhere else. The only reason you are where you are or who you are is because of the grace of the Lord. And what we see is there's spiritual plagiarism that goes on all around in our lives. For many of us, whenever we speak, we speak a lot and we like to puff ourselves up. Every single conversation somehow comes back to ourselves. Or whenever something happens, we use our words to get credit for it. We might even humble brag a little bit. For many of us, speech is the way that we commit this plagiarism. For others of us, though, it's through silence. Instead of giving God the glory and honor that he deserves, we just don't say anything at all. Friends, even in your own workplaces, do you realize that honor and glory should be given to him? God could shut down anywhere if he wanted to like that. In your words or in your silence, are you giving him glory and honor in your life? But I think the greatest way where we commit this, and this is where I know I struggle the most, and maybe you do too, it's in the area of selfishness. Not just that we use our words for ourselves or we don't speak and give God the glory, but it's a desire to want to get the glory. It's a desire to want to get credit for what we accomplish. You work hard and you get somewhere, you want the credit for that, but we forget God's the reason you're there. You finally work hard and you get some of that financial security you've been looking for. You forget God is the one is the reason that you're there. We seek credit for our possessions, our gifts, our accomplishments. We have kids and then we seek credit for our kids' successes, our kids' giftings, whenever they are of the Lord in so many ways. We want credit for our service, even whenever it comes into the church. What's crazy, y'all, is plagiarism. Spiritual plagiarism is so ingrained in the life of people, we often don't see it in others or recognize it in ourselves. But do we not realize that everything we have has been given from the Lord himself? Friends, your life was a gift to you. Every breath is a gift to you. Every gift you have is from the Lord to you. You didn't go to a Dollar General and say, let me take a little bit of this communication gift. Let me take a little bit of this hospitality gift. Let me take a little bit of that. No, no, no. God created you. Your resources are a gift from him. Your good breaks are a gift from him. Whatever it is that is worth talking about or boasting in your life is a gift from God. One of my favorite verses on this is James 1.17. James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Y'all, do you know how good of a God we serve We serve a God that is so good that in the midst of our own spiritual plagiarism, our own pride, God still gives us good things. In the midst of while you and I were sinners, God sent Jesus to die for us. The greatest gift the world has ever known was given in the midst of our own seeking to get our own glory. This is the God that we serve, a God who gives to us. But here's the danger. Here's the danger. The danger is that if we continue to seek to get credit rather than giving it to the Lord, we will miss out on what the Lord is seeking to do through us. And this will happen in one of two ways. Number one, you will miss out on salvation in your life. The number one reason why people do not submit their life to Jesus is pride. It's pride. They wanna earn their own way to heaven. That's spiritual plagiarism. Many people even in the church, if I can have this spirituality or if I can put on this this certain life, maybe if I just read the Bible, I can do all of these things. It's you wanting to get the glory for only what God can give you. For many of us, we'll not bow our knee and repent of living life our own way because we don't trust God in what he calls us to do. We think we know better. Friends, that's pride. That's plagiarism saying, I think I can do it. It's calling God a liar. And it's seeking to steal the glory that rightly belongs to him for yourself. You'll use your life for yourself, claiming to know what's best, and in that, you'll lose your life. But not just miss out on salvation. If you're a follower of Jesus, and you continue to walk in this, you will miss out on being used as God plans. 
Friends, God will not greatly use or bless someone who is seeking to steal the glory from him. I want you to notice in this very story, pride was the difference between victory with 32,000 or with, sorry, with defeat with 32,000 or victory with only 300. Pride would have caused them to lose. So why did God weaken Gideon's army, the danger of pride? But why so few? Why all the way down to 300? This seems a bit excessive, and it is on purpose. Why so few? Well, here's the second point we need to understand. Why did God weaken Gideon's army? To show Gideon the necessity of dependence. Not just the danger of pride, but also the necessity of dependence. In verses one through seven of this story, we see God is preparing Gideon for battle. How is he preparing him? Making him more self-confident? No. By giving him training in battle in some way? No. By helping him see this, that, or the other about himself? No. How is God preparing him for battle? By making him be completely dependent upon him. Dependence on the Lord was the objective for Gideon. In other words, to be used by the Lord, the point is this. To be used by the Lord, we must be absolutely and completely dependent upon him. Friends, please don't miss this. The surest way to sideline yourself from the hand of God is to think that you can do it on your own. The surest way to sideline yourself from your hand of God is to start believing your own press of what the Lord maybe is doing in your life. Friends, you see many people that God uses earlier in their life, and it's almost like the light bulb goes out. Why is it? Because the worst thing that can happen to us is for us to have success with the Lord or in our spiritual walk and for us to start thinking that we actually are the reason for it. Friends, some of us have besetting sin in our lives because if we were to, to overcome it, we would think we were the ones who did it. And maybe God is using sin in your own life to show you you need to depend on me. Our lives as Christians are not to show us about how great we are, about how self-sufficient we can be or self-confident we are. It's to show us that our only hope is in him. The Lord wants you to see that you are dependent on him for everything, your food, your clothes, your health, your breath, your relationships, your marriage, your parenting, your workplace, everything. The Lord wants you to see that you are dependent on him for your joy and your satisfaction and your pleasure and your contentment. Y'all, you and I know this much. All it takes is one domino to fall to take anything you place your security in for it to be wiped away real quickly. You put great worth in how well you take care of yourself and take care of your body. All it takes is a health diagnosis. You put great stock in your pride and what you've done in your job and in your work and your academics and, and you take great pride in that. All it takes is one domino for that to be gone. Friends, God does not give us these things for us to elevate ourselves, but for us to recognize they're all blessings from him and for us to be even more dependent upon him. Even in your spiritual life, the Lord never wants you to feel self-sufficient because you aren't. As we grow, we aren't supposed to become more independent from the Lord, but more aware of our absolute need for the Lord. And I think we get this mixed up. People think if I learn more about the Bible, the more I read God's word, the more dependent I can be. No, no, the purpose of reading the Bible is being more dependent upon him because you see what he can do, not what you can do. The more you share the gospel, it isn't to make you feel more confident in your ability to communicate, but in the Lord's ability to save people through your communication, despite your communication ability. Your experiences aren't supposed to make you feel more confident in yourself, but in the Lord's ability and faithfulness. Your struggles aren't supposed to make you feel better about yourself or your strength. They're supposed to make you lean against the rock that will not move. Friends, our whole life, even our salvation, is not to make you feel better about yourself or feel greater about yourself. It's for you to highlight the grace of Jesus in your life. Your salvation is about boasting in him. Your growth in Christ is about boasting in him because it's all because of him. Paul says it better than I ever could. Galatians 6, 14. But far be it from me to boast except for what? In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which what has happened? The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Friends, you and I were saved to glorify God with our whole lives. To be used by the Lord, we must be wholly dependent upon him because when we are completely dependent upon him it ensures that he alone will be the one who gets the glory you know when I was growing up I played basketball in high school and one thing that everybody on the high school team knew I mean I knew it very early on 
is everybody at some point wanted to be able to say that they scored 10 points. Because if you scored 10 points, the next day your name would be in the paper. I can remember several times where a buddy would have eight points or somebody would have eight points and we're just trying to feed him, trying to get him 10 points so he could get there so his name would get in the paper. I remember one guy specifically, he came in, the next day he's holding the paper, he's like, I made it. Which is so funny because I'm literally from a village and it's Jackson Parish, it's smaller, much smaller than Callaway County. And we have a small little paper. You have to go over to the sports section. You go all the way to page seven or whatever it is of the sports section. And you literally need a magnifying glass to see the name Nun 12, right? Like nobody's looking for that. Nobody, nobody's going and looking back there. But for us, it was such a big deal. Get your name in the paper. I'll never forget one day after we had a big game our senior year. Our team was really good. My mom walks in with a paper and she says, Merrick, look. And she's holding the sports page. And on the front of the sports page is a picture of me doing a finger roll at the front of the rim. The top of it said, second to none, N-U-N-N, my last name. Second to none, which is kind of cheesy in many ways, but kind of fun at the same token. And I can remember I saw this, and immediately I'm like, man, look at all those scrubs back there on page seven, right? Like the spot that I was looking for for forever, now just they pick some random photo. I don't even remember the game. I might not even have, I generally don't know, but maybe they just like the, the, the little thing that they did. I don't know. But I was so proud of that. I can remember taking that around, showing the front of the paper. My mom probably still has it. If you mothers know, y'all know y'all keep those sort of things. But why did the headline matter much more to me than the page seven little footnote? Because the headline, you're at the very front. Like it's where everybody's gonna see. Everybody knows the headline. The top story is much better than what's gonna be on page seven. Friends, listen to me. God desires in all things to be the headlines in your and my life. And here's the problem. Here's the problem. For many of us, we say, I give God glory in my life, and maybe you do. The problem is, is you are the headline in what you do, and God has a footnote in your life somewhere. Look at what God's there. Of course, all this is because of God, but let me tell you what I've done and what God has done through me. Friends, if God is not the headline, he's going to stop writing the press. Not because God is some glory-hungry person for the wrong reasons. No, no, no. God is the one who deserves all glory. All of it's because of him. You wouldn't be here if it wasn't because of him. You wouldn't receive salvation if it wasn't because of him. The Lord tells us in Matthew 6 that birds eat for one reason. God provides for them. A flower grows and blooms for one reason. God is the one who's doing it. In Colossians 1, we see Jesus is the one who behind all things. In all things, we live and move and have our being through Jesus because of what he's done for us. And friends, God does not bless spiritual plagiarism or pride. But when we seek to recognize we are absolutely dependent upon him and that all the glory belongs to him, he will do in our lives what you and I could not even imagine. 1 Corinthians 2, 9, it's written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man even imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So I want you to stop and consider. For many of you, maybe you're frustrated about where you're at in your spiritual walk. Maybe you're frustrated with some struggle that you're having in your life or frustrated, you know, you come to church each week and you're just looking for more for the Lord. It just seems like the Lord's not doing certain things in your life. I want to ask you to pause and answer the question. What if the reason the Lord isn't doing certain things in your life is because he knows that if he did, you would seek to get the credit for it? What if the reason that God isn't moving in those areas of your life that you want is because he knows if he did, you'd be more reliant on yourself, not more reliant upon him? What if God doesn't remove that crutch in your life that you've been asking him for because God wants to teach you, depend on me alone. You don't need anything else. God will do whatever is necessary to break us of our self-reliance, and he does that to those whom he loves. He disciplines us that we might share in his holiness. And in this, we learn probably the hardest lesson of them all and the most difficult to wrap your brain around. Why did God weaken Gideon's army? to show him the danger of pride, the necessity of dependence, but also, thirdly, the advantage of weakness. God weakened Gideon's army to show him the advantage of weakness, which for us just doesn't make sense. The advantage of weakness. At this point in the story, Gideon is weaker and more vulnerable than at any other point that we've seen him. He was probably more secure in the wine press, hiding than he is right now looking down at this valley, the sea of people in front of him with only 300 people around him. The text even wants you to see how lonely he actually is. Look at verse 8. It says, So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, 
And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but he retained the 300 men. They stayed with him. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Not below them in the valley, below him. I can imagine Gideon probably thinks in his mind, 300 might as well be just me by myself. This isn't going to matter in the grand scheme of things. But this is the position the Lord brought him to before he would bring him victory. The point is, is God wanted Gideon to see that his only hope for success was through the Lord's intervention. Don't miss it, though. The only hope for his success the whole time was through the Lord's intervention. But it took breaking him. It took weakness for him to understand this. Gideon now had an advantage that he did not have whenever the 32,000 were around him. Hear that again. Gideon at this point has an advantage that before he did not have, and that advantage is weakness. He has only one prayer, and it's that God would show up. How is weakness an advantage? Well, if dependence is the objective, weakness is an advantage. If dependence is the objective of our lives, weakness is an advantage. If our weakness is what makes us lean to Jesus and trust in Jesus, it is an advantage. I can assure you this much. Gideon felt absolutely dependent upon the Lord. All the 300 men saw their only chance as divine intervention. What brought that about? Weakness. Bringing them low in order for them to see the only way for God to use me The only way for God to use us in this circumstance is if he shows up. I read a story this week that really struck me because it's impacted me and I assume it's impacted you. And it seems so small at the beginning and yet so large towards the end. In 1960, two men made a bet with one another. One man bet the other man $50 that he could not write an entertaining children's book with only 50 words. Said you get 50 words, 50 different words, that's it. And the guy who was given the bet says, you know what, you're on. I'll take that bet. The guy who offered the bet was by the name of Bennett Kerf, the founder of Random House Publishing. The second man who took the bet, his name was Theodore Seuss Geisel, whom you likely know as Dr. Seuss. The result of that bet is a little-known work called Green Eggs and Ham. Now, I hope that you have read that book. If not, just, I don't even care if you're on your phone. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that right now. Over 200 million copies have been sold as the result of a bet that he couldn't write an entertaining children's book. I think he did okay. (laughs) His greatest work ever. Like how one writer in sharing the story says, at first glance, you might think this was a lucky fluke. A talented author plays a game with 50 words and ends up producing a hit. But there's actually more to the story. What Dr. Seuss discovered, he would say, is the power of setting constraints. The power of having constraints. He says, constraints or limitations are not the enemy. Every artist has a limited set of tools to work with. Every athlete has a limited set of skills to train with. Every entrepreneur has a limited amount of resources to build with. Once you know your constraints, once you understand your limitations, you can creatively figure out how to work with them. He ends his article by saying, there are a lot of authors who would complain about writing a book with only 50 words, but there is one author who decided to take the tools he had available and make a work of art instead. And quite a work it was. Friends, the point is this, is everybody in this room has weaknesses. All of us have limitations. All of us have things that we would probably say, God, if you would just remove this or take this or do this, then I could. And what God might be saying to you is, no, no, that's the avenue. That's the avenue for me to work through you. For you, you might say my weakness is a lack of education, a lack of resources, a painful past, a health concern, physical disabilities, a lack of ability, a lack of gifting. The list could go on. But friends, the Bible over and over and over again does not say God can't use people with weaknesses. It says that God uses people via their weaknesses. God uses their weaknesses that he might get the glory because it's in our weaknesses that we cry out to him. And if it's the pain that makes me lean onto the rock that never moves, God will have it there so that you can learn that rock will not move. You can trust in him. As Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China in the 1800s once wrote, God wants you to have something far better than riches and gold, and that is helpless dependence upon him. Friends, there's nothing that leads to helpless dependence in our lives quite like weakness, struggle, pain, 
hardship. And so maybe this morning you come here and you feel metaphorically like your army is dwindling. Like there's weaknesses around you, like you're taking hit after hit after hit. What I would challenge you is maybe you need to rethink the weaknesses and ask the question, is this the avenue that God's trying to show me I need to lean on him? Here's Gideon, standing above this valley full of enemies. He seems alone, he's struggling with it, and it's in this spot where God speaks to him. Look at verse 9. That same night, the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. I mean, this is somewhat unbelievable, right? Gideon is up there. No doubt he's feeling lonely. He doesn't even have a chance to stop and take stock of where they're at. And God already gives him the command, get up and go. <laughs> go. The last time we saw God giving Gideon, or anytime God gives Gideon any charge, he asks for a test. God, show me something. God, show me something. And so you would almost anticipate at this point that Gideon's going to say, Lord, please just just show me something. And what I want you to notice is Gideon doesn't even have to ask, but God this time initiates that he wants him to know, I want you to know and be sure I am with you. Notice what he says in verses 10 through 12. The Lord says, but if you are afraid, which I chuckle at that, of course the Lord knew that he was afraid. If you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore is in abundance. So Gideon is afraid. Rightly so. 99% of his army is gone. But look at what the Lord does. The Lord does, it says, why don't you just keep doing this? How come I keep having to show you tests? Instead, we see the Lord compassionately says, if you need reassurance, I'm going to provide the means for you. But the means, you have to walk down into the army camp. That's pretty active faith, right? You have to walk down into this sea, into this army camp, and there is where you will find reassurance. And we see that Gideon goes, and notice what happens. Verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. Now, I want you to pause for a second. Maybe you've heard this before, maybe you haven't. This is the most unintimidating, terrifying vision in history. If you have home insurance because you own a home, I hope you do, I highly doubt in your policy is what happens if a loaf of bread hits the side of my house, right? I highly doubt that's there. And this is what we see here is a loaf of bread comes in and knocks over the tent. Look, I've been to Lambert's plenty of times. I've seen people get smoked by rolls. Nobody gets knocked down, right? A roll is not going to do anything. You look at this and it's almost laughable. Like, wow, a, a loaf of bread is going to do this? But then it gets even better. Verse 14. Look at the assurance God gives to him. It says, and his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Which never Gideon hears that, y'all, I feel like there has to be two emotions. One, there has to be, wow, they know God is gonna work through me. But the second camp is, I'm the loaf of bread. What man says, hey, I'm Mr. Biscuit, right? Like this is, this is my intimidating name. Y'all, this is supposed to be intentionally funny. The point is, is God is giving them a crazy vision of a loaf of bread coming in and getting here is I'm the loaf of bread. What's the whole point is it is impossible for a loaf of bread to knock over anything like a tent. It's impossible for a loaf of bread to do anything like that. You know what else is impossible? For 300 men to be able to take out 135,000 people, and that's the point of the vision. God even gave them the vision that what you think is not even impossible, or not even possible, I'm about to do it. So why? They are going to understand who gets the glory, as well as God's people. The Lord is in this. Even the people down below know that they aren't going to win. And here's the point. Why did God weaken Gideon's army? This is the last part. He wants to show Gideon the abundance of his grace. To show Gideon the danger of pride, the necessity of dependence, the advantage of weakness, and then the abundance of his grace. 
Friends, don't miss that God did not want Gideon to question whether he was with him or not. Many this morning want to think, I look for reassurance. Is God really with me? Hear me. If he is, he wants you to know. God doesn't want you walking through questioning whether he's on your side or not. God doesn't want you to know or questioning whether you really have a relationship with him or not. God doesn't want you walking around questioning whether he's really doing something through you or not. No, no. God wants you to know. And in his weakness, Gideon looked to the Lord for strength. And when he looked to the Lord, the Lord provided it for him through active faith. Friends, if you want to know the grace of the Lord in your life, you must lean into him. You must trust him. He won't just use your weakness, but he'll show you his own goodness and grace and glory all through your own weaknesses. One of the greatest examples of this is in the life of Paul. Paul had incredible knowledge. God gave Paul specific visions. Paul was set apart for a specific reason. But because of this, God also beset him with a lot of weaknesses. And Paul tells us about this in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. Notice what he says. He tells the church of Corinth that God has given him incredible knowledge, but then he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that God had given to him, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited, prideful. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, not just of this weakness, but of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, do not miss this. If it weren't for the weaknesses that God had for Paul in his life, we would never have a lot of the books we have in the New Testament because he would not have been able to write them because he'd have been too prideful for God to use him. God put weakness in his life so that he could learn humility, learn absolute dependence on the Lord. Visions from God himself did not make him now move into some other stratosphere where he could do this on his own. And once Paul understood God's using my weakness to cause me to lean into him, he says, I'll boast in every single one of them then. Whatever it is that causes me to lean on him, that's what I will sing because dependence on the Lord is the objective. And dependence on the Lord is the objective. Weakness is a strength. In our weaknesses, friends, we learn the overwhelming and enabling grace of our Lord and Savior. And when he works in our lives, he'll do so in such a way that you'll say, that's not me. That's only because of what he has done through me, and that's the way it's meant to be. Notice what God does through Gideon. Look at verse 15 and following. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, Mr. Biscuit Man, right? He worships. He worships. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Notice this, y'all. First thing he does, he falls on his face because why? Because why? He has confidence now. He knows they're going to win. What's crazy is, is he should have known that they were going to win before. They always were going to win because of God. But now he has confidence. Friends, in your and my life, there's a lot to talk about here we don't have time for. But you will start living through your weaknesses whenever you recognize that no battle ultimately wins in your life because God has already won the war. Whenever it comes to areas of your life of hardship and difficulty, what you know is God puts his people through whatever it takes to get them to lean on to him so you can lean in even in the midst of your weaknesses because no battle will win because the Lord has won the war. And this will lead us to worship. We see him worshiping. And then after worshiping, he gets up and he immediately goes, Arise, the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And notice what happens. And he divided the 300 men into three companies And he put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. When they had just set the watch, And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and the right hands the trumpets to blow. 
and they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, which in many ways is interesting since they didn't have swords, right? A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Obviously, they're trying to make the people think something that they don't even have. Two and one, every man stood in this place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord said, every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah, towards Zerera, as far as the border of Abel, Meholah, by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. What we see is he gets confidence from the Lord, and then he acts. And when he acts, God does an incredible, incredible work through him. Friends, you can't fully appreciate all this if you don't remember chapter 6 or know chapter 6. The first question that Gideon asked the Lord, whenever the Lord shows himself to him, is where are all the mighty works that we've heard about that you have done? And he goes from there, and a chapter later, he does one of the greatest works of salvation the Bible knows. One of the greatest acts of deliverance came through a one who first said, God, where are you? But then learned dependence on God. And through that, God used him. Friends, this is beautiful. Listen, the Lord called Gideon a mighty man of courage when he wasn't. And he wasn't then. But by emptying himself of fear and self-reliance, he became who the Lord called him to be. Here's the principle you've got to understand. Only in emptying yourself will you become who God created you to be. It's only in emptying yourself that you will become who God created you to be. Again, we don't have time to jump through all of this. But Jesus tells us this. It's something that's repeated in all four Gospels, which if that's the case, I would tell you to listen up. If you want to save your own life, go ahead, but you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, that's the only way to save it. If you want to gain your life, you must empty yourself of it. If you want to gain living, if you want to live with purpose, if you want to find joy and satisfaction that you are longing for and seeking to live for, there's only one way. You must come to the foot of the cross because it's only by him that you can find it. Here's the greatest example that we have here is I want you to think about the way Jesus chose to come and redeem the world. He could have done it any way he wanted to. Genesis 3, the plan was already hatched. It was already happening. God could have redeemed the world in a different way if he so chose to do so. But how did Jesus come? Jesus, who's in heaven, Philippians chapter 2, it says he emptied himself. He emptied himself of his divine rights, his divine privileges, and he came to earth as a man. Not just as a man, as a servant. Not just as a servant, as someone who would be other people's servants. He came in weakness, so ordinary, so normal. His life, he didn't have a place where he was going to stay. He had to find food just like anybody else. He came in weakness. Then ultimately he was taken, he was beaten, he was killed in weakness. And it was through that weakness that God brought victory in our lives. Friends, the only way to find in victory is through emptiness and weakness. It's the plan God's had all along. Because it's in our weakness that we learn he is the rock that will never be shaken. The question is, do you wholly depend upon him? Are you learning dependence upon Jesus? So would you just bow your heads with me? And as the band comes up and begins to lead us in a response song, I just want to ask you several questions this morning in order to help you respond to the sermon. I ask you simply just to bow your heads, close your eyes, not for any specific purpose other than just to think for yourself. And the first question I want to ask you is how is your pride hindering the Lord from using you? How is your own pride hindering the Lord from using you? For some of you this morning, the reason you're not a child of God is because of your pride. For some of you this morning, you have missed salvation because you think that you belong there. For some of you, you've missed salvation because you, like the Pharisees, you maybe know a lot about the Bible, but you think you've earned your spot in heaven. Friends, you cannot earn your way there. There's nothing you can do to earn your good graces before the Lord. And the challenge for you this morning is, will you strip yourself of your pride? Will you repent of thinking that you know the way, thinking that you are worthy to make it on your own good deeds? 
Will you strip yourself of your own pride and repent and place your faith wholeheartedly in Jesus for salvation? Friends, God's can't be at the forefront of our lives if we are always at the forefront. Maybe this morning you say, Merrick, I know I have a relationship with Jesus. Well, let me ask you, how is your pride hindering the Lord from using you? Maybe the biggest issue in your life is not that the Lord isn't working through you, but that's if he would, you would take the credit for it. Maybe this morning it's very clear there are ways that you are spiritually plagiarizing. Maybe it's in your speech. Maybe it's by your silence. Maybe it's in your selfishness. Friends, what are your motives for seeking to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish? What are your motives in parenting? What are your motives in your your marriage? What are your motives in school? What are your motives at your workplace? It ultimately should be that we have an opportunity to use the gifts that God has given us and the relationships and the opportunities to give Him the credit that He deserves. And maybe for you this morning, you need to repent because your life is marked by plagiarism. Maybe you need to ask and answer this question this morning. Do you understand the necessity of dependence on the Lord for your life? Do you understand just how badly do you need Him? Maybe this morning the question you need to answer is how do you need to reevaluate what you consider a weakness in your life? Maybe you need to understand that that weakness, whatever it is, might actually be your greatest strength because it causes you to lean on Jesus. Maybe you need to reevaluate the weaknesses you see in your life. Lastly, this morning, maybe your response is you just need to delight in the abundance of God's grace. Friends, whenever God works through us, we should be amazed that he could use someone like us. And maybe this morning as we stand and as we sing, you want to worship him because of the work that he's done through you and the abundance of his grace that you get to experience. Heavenly Father, I just ask you, please help us see our need this morning by your spirit. Work in our hearts this morning. Help us see how we need to respond. Lord, help us do so this morning. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.